Well, good morning, Johnson Ferry. It's so good to be here with you as we're finishing up our series or continuing it, Summer Essentials. And here's the biggest summer essential that I need every summer. It's going on a good vacation. Am I right? Who loves a good vacation in here? Love going to the beach. Uh, Probably many of you watching online are at vacation right now. We love a good vacation. And uh, in student ministry, you know you're busy all year. You're going on trips, you have weekends. And so in the summer, you gotta have a time to find, to get away with family. And so we love uh, really just taking a great vacation. That is definitely a summer essential for us. And we love the beach. I mean, I think I actually have a picture of the beach up here. The reason I love the beach is that uh, the beach, when you go, well, the sand's not so great, but the ocean is just so huge. And you can get up really early, you can watch a sunrise, you can stay up late and watch the sun set. And then you, when you look at that picture, you really begin to understand like how small you are in comparison to that ocean. Like when you go on a cruise, you really feel that because you're out in the middle of the water and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And it's like, when you see that picture, it's just that moment of just awe and wonder for what you're seeing. And last year, Kara and I, uh, before we started having children, we wanted to go on one big vacation. So we decided to go to Glacier National Park. And man, was that a trip. It was incredible. Um, I actually do have some pictures of that too that you can kind of get an idea of what it looks like. So uh, it's, it's in Montana and Kalispell. The, it actually goes through the border of Canada. And on the backside, it's, it like turns into Banff National Park in Canada. But those are the, the sites you see. Like the blue water is just incredible from the glaciers melting, the huge snow-capped mountains. There's another picture too that has wildflowers and just a really cool landscape. I mean, there's bear, moose, all the animals you can think of. And one of the hikes we went on while we were in Glacier National Park was uh, called Snyder Lake. And we actually, when we were there, we brought our parents with us. So my parents came with us and uh, Kara's parents came with us and we decided, I was like, all right, we gotta go on at least one super long hike. Like one long hike, worst decision of my life, okay? So we decided to go on a long hike and uh, it's called Snyder Lake. And I, you know, I pump everybody up, like, let's go, let's do this. That's what I do for my job. So this is, this'll work. Um, and so we get them out there and like from the get go, I mean, we are going straight up this mountain in Glacier National Park. And then after about a couple hours, uh, Kara's parents decide they're gonna just turn back. They can't go anymore. And then a few more hours and my parents are turning back. And I look at Kara and I'm like, we have got to do this. We've got to make it. We've got to get all the way. And so she would, we're getting like, you can, like, you can kind of get the idea, like these mountains are all around you. And she's like, are we almost close? Are we close? Are we almost there? And I'm like, yes, 30 more minutes. Give me all you got. A couple hours later, we're still walking and I'm still pumping her up. We've got to get here. And we get to the top of this, uh, this hike and all of a sudden when you get there, you just see this huge lake that's surrounded by all of these snow-capped mountains and you have this moment of just awe and wonder and you're literally breathless. And I don't know if that's from the hike or if that's from me just seeing the view But really, it is breathtaking. I mean, you get up there and you're just in this sense of awe and wonder because you realize how big and how great and how awesome these mountains are. And you realize how tall, how small you really are in comparison to that mountain. 
And, and the reason I tell you that story this morning is because we're gonna look at a scripture in Romans chapter eight that is all about magnifying and showing us the greatness of who God is, that he is all powerful, that he is majestic, that he is above all things. It seeks to make him really big. And so I hope that today that you will leave here with a sense of awe and wonder of who God is and it goes and it transforms your life. So I've, named, I've titled this uh, message called That You May Know, That You May Know. And my hope is that you may know the greatness of who God is here today. So Romans chapter eight, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. It is gonna be on the screen. Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through 39. And uh, let's stand together as we read God's word in honor of him. And just so you know, I'm preaching out of the English Standard Version today, the ESV, uh, which is a little different than what Clay preaches out of. He preaches out of the NASB. So if you notice a, a slight change, that, that's why. Romans chapter eight, verses 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word today, I pray that your name would be magnified. I pray that your name would be glorified above every name. I pray for all the hearts in here, Father, today that will hear your word preached. I pray that it would not return void. I pray that you would change their lives, transform them, show them how great and how big you are. And I pray that it would uh, just transform their lives in the way that they live each and every day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Clay said it earlier in the video, my name is Logan Grantham and I'm our student pastor here and I've been here full time for about five years. Uh, I've been around for, since 2014, I didn't grow up here, but uh, started as an intern in 2014. So about nine years have been at this church and seen this church change a lot. And I've just been so grateful for all the ways that you guys have loved me and my family uh, over the years. It's a blessing to be here, to share the word of God with you this morning, but then also just love and pour into your students and your, many of your families. And so I just wanna thank you for your support. Um, I mentioned earlier that I had a wife, her name's Kara, and uh, she's a teacher. She's actually teaching at JFCA this year for the first time, and she's excited for that. Yeah, got a JFCA fan club. Woo. 
Um, so she's teaching at JFCA. And then we have a daughter, and her name is Mary May, and she is the best ever. She is the literal best. She is five months old, and so we're doing great at our house. We're learning every day of how to care for a little baby. Um, I call her May or Eminem. Um, she is just, just perfect. And uh, she looks a lot like me, so I call her my mini May. She's my mini May. My dad always called me his mini me, so it like feels great to be able to call her like my mini me, but I say May, okay, you get it. So anyways, um, so no, I'm, I'm excited uh, to be here and share God's word with you in Romans chapter eight. And I think it's important for us to really uh, understand the background of Romans before we dive into this chapter and, the, and just the incredible words that Paul has written here. Um, so the book of Romans was written by Paul himself, and in chapters five and eight is kind of a unique section where Paul talks about this idea of hope, that we have an assurance of hope that's found in Christ Jesus. And the way he opens the beginning of this section in chapter five, he talks all about love, all about hope, the love of Christ, how we were enemies of God, but now we have been made right with God. And the same way he opens it in chapter five, he actually ends it in chapter eight. And so today, if I could kind of sum up today's passage in kind of one sentence, I would say it's this. Our knowledge of the holy gives us hope for the future. Our knowledge of the holy gives us hope for the future. So I titled this message that you may know because in verse 26, Paul says here, here's what we don't know. But then in verse 28, he transitions and he says, but here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. And in verse 28, it's, it's a popular verse that we all know. It says, and we know, there it is, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now it's important for us to realize here that he said, we know that those who love God is an exclusive statement, that this passage that Paul is writing is to believers, people who've committed their lives to Jesus. So this is not a passage of comfort for an unbeliever because what he's gonna talk about is about all being in God's family and how God loves us. And if you're not following Jesus, you're not a part of God's family. And so he says, for all of us who love God, and if you're a part of his family, he works all things for your good. When we think that, that word all things, he's literally meaning everything, the bad, the good, the ugly, everything that happens in our lives, if we're a part of God's family, he works all of those things for our good. And that's truth number one, that God uses all things for the good of his children. That God uses all things and works all things for the good of his children. Now, we love that verse, we love the fact that God is working for our good, am I right? A lot of you have that verse as kind of your life verse. But if we're not careful, we may take that verse out of context and think that God is just joining me on my life story to make me very comfortable and to make my life great. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that God is joining us on our life story, and he's gonna bring us all this earthly comfort. That word for good is not referring to earthly comfort. That word is actually meaning that we are being conformed to Christ. 
And we know that because of verse 29, and we'll get there. But whenever he says that God works all things, the good and the bad, for our good, he uses all things to conform us into the image of his son. And the best thing that you could ever, the best good that you could ever receive is to be redeemed by God and to be transformed by him. So God here, or Paul here, is saying that when God works all things for our good, it's not for earthly comfort, it's by being conformed into the image of Christ. And in verse 29, he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, there it is, to the image of his son. So from the beginning of time, God knew who would be in his family. And that word predestined means to preordain or it means to predetermine. Like in other words, what he's saying is, is that God foreknew who would be in his family and his plan all along, he preordained the fact that if you're in his family, he's going to conform you to the image of his son. And then he says that if, if you've been predestined, those who are predestined, uh, he also calls. And those he calls, he also justifies. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. That word justify is a, is a beautiful word that we see in scripture. And basically what that means is, is that, uh, and Romans talks about this, is that we all have sin in our lives. We all have moments in our lives where we walk away and we rebel against God. And Romans actually says that, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6 also says that there's a payment for our sin and that the payment for our sin is death. That's what we deserve. But whenever he says, if you're a part of his family, that he justifies you, that means that he settled and took care of your payment for you. In other words, he makes you right with him. He redeems your life. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place and he justified you before God. He settled the payment for your life. And I love the fact that he doesn't end there. He said, if he, he justifies you, he also will glorify you. Now, none of us are perfect in any way. We still make mistakes, but we are being transformed to the image of Jesus. And one day, God makes the promise that he will glorify our lives, that he will perfect us. He will bring back to order what was meant to be in the beginning of creation. I love the fact that from the beginning of time to the end of time and everything in between, that God has always been working for our good when he foreknew us, when he predestined us to be conformed to his son, when he called us, when he justified us, and when he will glorify us one day. That's what Paul's meaning when he says, God works all things together for good who are called according to his purpose that from the beginning of time to the end of time, God has redeemed our lives and he's not gonna just leave us there. He's gonna transform us and one day he's going to glorify us and spend eternity with him forever. That's the first truth that you should know. But then he goes on. And, and in the next section, uh, the, the, the point that I want you to know is this, number two, that God has spoken, what will you say? that God has spoken, now what will you say? 
So Paul here kind of transitions where he says in, in 28 and 30, he says, here's what we know. And then in, in 31 through 37, he asks us six rhetorical questions. And the point of these questions is to make the reader uh, think about what God has done for him, for them. And they know the answer to these questions based on what they've already know, what they've already seen. And Paul's wanting us to know that like, hey, God has already spoken. From the beginning of time to the end of time, he has spoken his plan for our lives. Now, what will you say? And he begins with this first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I love that phrase, that God is for us. And that word for if there in the Greek is actually what we call a conditional participle. And what it means is that it's not just a possibility. It's not this like, well, if God's for you, who can be against you? It's, a, it's not a possibility, it's of certainty. It, it, basically what Paul's saying here is he's saying, because God is for you, who can be against you? And the answer is no one. No one can be against you because God is for you. Now again, that phrase, God is for us, we can take that out of context. And we can think that God, his whole plan is to join us in our life story. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that God is for you because you are a part of his family. And if God is for you, no one can be against you. And I just want you to take that in for a second and understand the fact that the creator of the universe, the one who is making the earth spin right now, the one who has given us oxygen in our lungs, that he is for you. The one who brought you here today, the one who's above all things, he is for you. From the beginning of time to the end of time and all in between, Paul wants you to know that God is for you. And when you struggle to believe it sometimes, this is the verse that you go back to, that God is for you. And it's not because of anything you've done, but it's because he has welcomed you into his family. God is for you. Who can be against you? No one. And then in the second question he asks in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God can spare his own son and give Jesus up for all of us, then I'm pretty sure God can handle giving us all things. If God has the strength and the ability to give away his own son, to, to die for all of us, then I'm almost positive, I'm pretty positive that God has the ability to give us all things. And not only does he give it to us, it says he, he graciously gives it to us. He freely gives us all things. And again, if we're not careful, we can look at that word all things and we can misread it. Because that sounds really good, right? I mean, I'm all in for God giving me all things. I mean, my truck's in the shop right now. I would love a brand new truck when I got home. I'm pretty sure all of you would love a brand new vehicle or a brand new house or the best health or the best vacations. We love the fact that it says that God will give us all things, but if we're not careful and we don't understand it in the context, we'll misread what Paul is really trying to tell us. 
based on what he's already said, we know that whenever he says that God will give us all things, it doesn't mean that he's gonna give us all earthly comforts to make us happy. God is not in this for our life story. But God is gonna give us all things that's gonna conform us into the image of his son. Because that is the best good that we could ever get from him. The fact that we've been redeemed and transformed by him. So who gives us all things? God will give us all things that will transform our lives and conform us to the image of his son. And then he gives a third question. In verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. So who can charge us? No one. Who can charge us? No one. No one can bring a charge against God's children. Because ultimately, God is the supreme judge. He is the supreme court of the world. He is the one who calls the shots. What he says goes. No one can overrule God himself. And when God justifies you, he makes you right with him. No one can ever charge you of anything that would make you unjustified. God has justified our lives. But we have to ask that question, what does that mean? I mean, there are people all around the world that are charged for their faith, that are persecuted. They go through really difficult times. I mean, a lot of them lose their lives. And even though there may be people all around the world that are charged because of their faith in Jesus, and they may lose their lives, that they do not actually lose. The enemy thinks they lose, but they actually win. Because at the end of time, when their life is done on this earth, they are justified and made right and glorified with Jesus forever. No one can charge you because God is the ultimate judge. He's the supreme court of the world. No one can ever overrule him. And if you are a part of his family, he has taken your sin and he has made you right with him. Who can charge you? No one. And then the next question, uh, verse 34, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. So who is to condemn us? No one. No one can condemn us. Um, I personally, I, I love this one the most, and, and, and Paul actually answers his question here whenever he says, who will condemn us? And then he answers it with telling us about what Jesus has done for us. He says, who can condemn you? Jesus was already condemned for you. He had already died for you. And not only did he die, but he, he rose again. He was buried and he rose again. And at this moment, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the highest place of honor that you could be. He is there. A lot of times we think of Jesus on the cross and that's amazing, but we cannot forget that Jesus is no longer on the cross, that he defeated the cross, he defeated death, he ascended into heaven, and he is at the right hand of the throne of God. And the beauty of that is this, Paul reminds us that he is at the right hand of the throne of God and he is actually interceding on our behalf right now. At this very moment, he is interceding for every single one of you. 
Probably the best example of this is in John chapter 17, where Jesus is about to be delivered into death on the cross, and he's praying the high priestly prayer, and he prays that God would not take them out of the world, his followers, he would not take them out of the world, but he would protect them from the evil one. And he says this at the end, he says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Jesus in that moment, knowing what he's about to do, that he's about to redeem their lives, he's about to to take their payment for them, he is pleading with God, interceding on their behalf, that God would protect them and that God would sanctify them, would transform them. So rest assured that if Jesus, he interceded for us then, it says he's interceding for us now, and at this very moment, he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he is declaring you justified for, by or to God, saying that he, you are a part of his family. And not only that, he's praying that you would be protected from the evil one. He's praying that you would be transformed into the image of him. God, Jesus, is interceding for all of us right now at this very moment. And then he goes into the last question, question number 35, or in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, he asks that question, who can separate us from the love of God? And then in verses 35 and 36, he begins to say, will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, will danger, will sword, will any of that separate us from the love of God? And then he quotes Psalm 44 in verse 36 because persecution is not new. At that moment when that Psalm was written, the people of God in the Old Testament were being persecuted for their faith. They were living in captivity. They were going through distress. They were going through pain. And that's nothing new to today that every single one of us will go through distress and hardships in our lives. Nobody here is immune to tribulations and hardships. From the Old Testament, the people of God were were persecuted, they had distress, all the way to Jesus and the new believers in the New Testament, they were persecuted, they had distress, they had issues, And even today, at this very moment, there are brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted for their faith. And there are many of you who are dealing with distress and pain and hardship and tribulation and trials and persecution. And I love what Elizabeth Elliot says about suffering. She said, suffering is anything you want, but you don't have or anything you don't want, but you do have. Suffering and persecution and trials and distress is inevitable. We all have it in our lives. I think it's true that nobody wants cancer. Nobody wants to be poor. Many of you probably want your spouse back. Many of you want the pain in your body to go away. 
Many of you are dealing with trials and persecution and hardships right now in your life. And if you're not, you will one day. And I love in this verse, in verse 37, Paul for the first time declares the answer to the question. He says, can any of that separate us from the love of God? And the answer in verse 37 is no, none of that, nothing. No one or nothing can separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is because of Jesus that we can't be separated from God's love because we didn't earn it in the first place. We didn't deserve it, but he graciously gave it to us anyway. So can anything separate us from that? No, it can't. And that's our third and final point that we see here in verses 38 and 39, is that you may know that God's love is eternal and unshakable. God's love is eternal and unshakable. And in verse 38, he says, for this I am sure. I've seen God work from the beginning of time until now. And for this I am sure, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is sure that nothing can separate us. And God's love is eternal in the way that from the beginning of life to the end of death, it cannot be broken. It's unshakable in that Nothing can ever move it or remove it from us. It is founded. God's love is founded in the fact that God himself is eternal and unshakable. And I think what makes this passage realize, it, what make this passage, uh, the way it speaks to me the most is because when I read this passage, I realize that I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve any of this. None of you deserve any of this. I don't deserve for God to work for my good because I am not good. I am sinful. I don't deserve God to work for my good, to use all things. I don't deserve God to justify my life. I don't deserve God to glorify me, to perfect me one day. I don't deserve for God to be for me because in my life, I haven't really been for him. I don't deserve to have God give me all things to transform me. I don't deserve to not be charged for my sin. I don't deserve to not be condemned for my sin. I deserve to be condemned. I don't deserve God's love. I deserve to be separated from God's love. And yet, God looks on all of us as his people and his children, and he says, I love you, and there's nothing in the world that can ever separate you from me. There's nothing. There's no death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God works for the good of his people. Not because you earned it, 
but because he has chosen you to be a part of his family. And there is nothing that can take that away. And the question that I have for you is that are you in awe and wonder of how great God is? Because when you look at your life, you realize how small you are and how you don't deserve any of this. And when you see that God has given it to you anyways, you can't help but realize how amazing and how great he really is. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. And I hope that you leave here knowing and remembering that God works all things together for the good of his children. I hope that you leave here knowing that if God justifies you, that he doesn't leave you there, that he will glorify you. I hope that you leave here today knowing that God is for you, not because you did anything to make him for you, but because you are just one of his own. I pray that you leave here knowing that God has given you all things, the good and the bad, to conform you to the image of his son. I pray and I hope that you leave here knowing that you are not charged for your sin, but you have been justified, that God is the Supreme Court and he has declared you righteous because of Christ. I hope that you leave here knowing that you are not condemned because Jesus was condemned for you. And as, as right at this very moment, that he is interceding for all of us on our behalf. And I pray that you would leave here knowing that there is nothing else in all creation, no one, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, even when we don't deserve it. I hope that today you realize how great God is and how much he loves you. Our knowledge of the Holy One gives us great hope for the future. Our knowledge of God gives us great hope for the future. You know, in, a, in most sermons, we come to church, we, we love it when the pastor tells us something to do. It's nice when a passage tells us something to do. And, and there's nothing that necessarily the scripture's saying that we do, but what it's saying is that, that, that we should know this about God. And when we know these things about God, it gives us the, the desire to want to serve him and to be changed by him. I pray that your knowledge of God gives you hope for the future and that it changes your life this week. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you gave it to us even when we didn't deserve it. Father, we thank you that even when tribulation and persecution and distress will come, that we can rest assured from the beginning of time to the end of time that you will see us through. Father, we love you. I pray that our knowledge of you transforms our life and I pray that it would give us great hope for the future. May we share this truth with people who need to hear it. Father, we love you and we praise you and we pray all these things in the strong name of Christ, amen.